Now, the Roberts, the good organisation, adapted Grease into a feature film in 1978, directed by Randall Kleiser. Uh, you're, you're nodding quite a bit. You like this, Mark? <laughs> I remember it. I remember it coming out. How sad is that? Oh, it's, it was huge. Grease. Yeah. I, my I liked sister, it when it came my out. My sister had the album, I remember, actually. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Julie, you, you're familiar with this uh, album? Uh, yeah. I mean, it's like, it just gets who, ingrained into your... Who, who, <laughs> who, yeah. It wasn't, right? So the soundtrack album ended 1978 as the second best-selling album of the year behind the soundtrack of, well, actually behind Saturday Night Fever. Retrospective reviews have generally been positive. In 1998, Roger Ebert gave the film three out of four, calling it an average musical, <laughs> pleasant and upbeat and plastic. In 2018, Peter Bradshaw from The Guardian gave it five out of five stars, saying it's still a sugar, rough, sugar rush of a film. It is a classic, isn't it? Classic, Look, yeah. I'm not a major musical fan, but I can recall being, uh, what was I, nine or whatever, and yep. really getting into both Saturday Night Fever and Grease. Are you a musical fan, Julia? Um, not really. Not just, I'm just no. not that cultured guy. It's not going to lie. <laughs> no, 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 no. Not, 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 not a musical fan. What about you, Mark? Moulin Rouge, greatest oh. musical ever written oh, in the history rubbish. of the world. It was a terrible. <laughs> it's amazing. It's so it is not. It is just. Ama- it's amazing. <laughs> but you're I joking. can't believe it was even made. It's so good. No, no. But you're joking, right? No, no. I love it. Moulin Rouge is fantastic. Wow. It is just the best thing ever. Do you know it's the 20th anniversary <laughs> of Moulin Rouge? No. Yeah, I might play that for you well, tomorrow. Thanks, I'd appreciate that. Yeah, it's a great take on lots of songs. It's amazing. <laughs> All right, now um, holiday disasters. Honeymoon night one. Hubby has kidney stone. Uh, Kiara Wallace. My first flight with two-month-old baby was the 26 hours from London to Auckland. My baby was so perfect. The other passengers didn't even realise she was there. <laughs> Says Sharon. Uh, look, a big response regarding hospitality uh, for and against. Well, actually, that's, that's not a forward against issue, but uh, on either side, many sides. I work in hospo for 18 years. The first non-hospo job I applied for offered me a starting rate higher than any previous employer. Why would anybody want to work for an industry that undervalues their staff? Yvonne says, I have a young member of family who works washing dishes, very low pay, treatment, lack of respect, no breaks. Very heavy, hard work. Had to stop due to shoulder, wrist injury from heavy lifting. Still recovering six months later. And I must read this one out. I co-own the engine room in Auckland, which is uh, owner-operator for 15 years, which I know, Mark, you know it's this. It's a great it's place. A, it's a, it's a Fabulous pretty restaurant. good establishment, isn't really it? Really good. Our staff are well looked after, trained and retrained. Working hours are 1 p.m. until 11. Working until 2.30, like you suggest, is not a normal practice, um, or anywhere I know of. Our preference is to employ locals, but they just aren't appropriate applicants. We are desperate for the government to allow migrants for us to employ. They bring a wealth of knowledge to our industry and help train local staff who have not been exposed to international cultures or travelled. This in turn, we believe, raises the standards of hospitality in our country. 100%. So that's Natalia's view. Your feedback uh, across the board is most welcome on all issues here. National MP... Paul Goldsmith comments that colonisation, on balance, had some benefits for Māori, have not been supported by his colleagues. Mr Goldsmith first suggested that colonisation was, on balance, a good thing for Māori over the weekend and then stood by them when challenged earlier this week. However, National Party leader Judith Collins disagrees, saying, quoting, most colonised peoples don't feel that colonisation works well for them. So this has had a big... uh, 
big response across week, hasn't it? With us to discuss is Dr. Ella Henry, the Director of Māori Advancement in the Business School at the University, Auckland University of Technology. Dr. Henry, kia ora. Kia ora, Wallace. Kia ora, Kajo. Kia ora. Lovely to have you on, Dr. Henry. And I mean, you must be, what, a little bit sick of hearing comments like this. What's your take? It's unfortunate, as I thought he was actually the only Māori in the National Party front line at one stage, um, <laughs> that he holds this view. But the reality is it does show a lack of understanding of pre-colonial Māori society, which, which clearly shows that we were not barbarous savages, as many racist anthropologists recorded us in the late 19th and early 20th century. We had, in fact, a very complex system of society and traditional knowledge, which is increasingly becoming recognised. And the tragedy is that so much of that was lost, along with the land and the language and the mana and the rangatiratanga as a part of the colonial process. I, I'm, I'm actually flummoxed that I'm agreeing with Judith in this regard, that, that this is unfortunate, the position he's taken. It's 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 a sort of t- tone that you, you'd hear quite a bit, and you hadn't heard it for some years. I mean, we have obviously examples of racism in the press and media, and this, but the, but but someone coming out saying this was it political? Do you think he means it? What, 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 what do you think? It certainly reflects some of the views that have come from followers of Hobson's Choice. Um, and I've heard that in recent years, the notion that the civilising effect of colonisation has been positive for Indigenous peoples around the world. And, and that view, unfortunately, flies in the face of all evidence to the contrary. Julia, let's bring you in. Julie Fopity, what do you think? Oh, lots of things, Wallace. Right. Um, it's, it's one of those... It's actually like a hit you in the pocket kind of hurt feeling, uh, even though I know that the Pauls um, exist and the, this kind of fakaro exists. Because what he's actually saying is that the the murder and rape and pillage of my people uh, was a good thing for us on balance, and that's not something I can I can ever stomach. And I, and when you think about, I think he's confusing two things, colonisation and contact. I mean, the art of colonisation right. is underpinned by racism and white supremacy, and it's a, understanding that one culture slash a white culture is more is more than another culture, an Indigenous culture, and here for us, that's us, that's Māori. Um, and, and the contact to say that we weren't in a position to develop our own, um, that we wouldn't progress uh, techni- uh, in technology and literacy and all of those kinds of things. But I didn't realise that Colonizer Cook arrived here on his Apple iPhone following his Google Map. And so we were, I mean, we were the first navigators of the seas. You know, we were already in business and trading internationally. So it's a... It's a personal attack, I take it, <laughs> but also um, I, it's a very targeted political um, action that he's taken to like distract from other stuff that's happening, you know, like that whole um, national candidate who's like posing as some kind of sex predator as his ex-girlfriend, and then which throw racism on the table, which is like the whole dead cat thing. So I've got no time for it. I'm mm-hmm. ho-ha and all of the things. Mark, do you have a mm. comment or a thought for uh, Ella Henry? 
Oh, I think the Nats, uh, you know, they're in a situation really, and, and this probably wasn't the best way to get some runs on the board. It certainly got a lot of attention. Uh, I think, you know, it's a, a complete misreading of, of a misreading the room and the tone of where, where we are as a country. I think it's good to see that we are having some really robust uh, conversations now, which are quite confronting. We, we look on our past and what's happened in New Zealand. Um, and I think on the, on the balance of things, to use Paul's own, own words, in 2021, if you're sitting around a table going, right, shall we go over to that country over there and take it over and do all these things? You're probably going to say no, right? Because it's not really the right thing to do. I think Paul has just as, uh, you know, maybe misread the room on this okay. and, uh, you know, it's not, not a great look the for so, the Nats. Uh, someone says here, Goldsmith's comment reminds me of the Monty Python scene from The Life of Brian. What have the Romans ever done for us? Um, <laughs> but, uh, Ella, I mean, picking up on what, uh, look, Act Leader David Seymour says, he's saying... I think there's always going to be an impact when New Zealand reconnect with the, with the world. Not saying it's justified. It's about balancing everything that's happened. And the question on balance, has colonisation been a good thing? The answer is yes, because New Zealand is one of the most successful societies in human history to grow up in today. So he's saying that reconnection uh, made us something bigger. What do you think? <laughs> I'm saddened by that view as well because the reality is that the the burden of that wonderful country that we live in now, the burden of it has fallen unfairly on Māori people. Um, and it is what we have lost. And keep in mind that for 70 years prior to the treaty in that period of this contact, Māori embraced the outside world. We adopted Western technology. We invited the British here in good faith. The fact that that turned into such an abusive relationship was not the intent when we signed the treaty. And we certainly didn't give up that sovereignty and, and control over our lives, but it was taken from us. So, so on balance, I would have to say that Māori have borne the burden of the wonderful country we have inherited today. And that goes to the point that colonisation isn't historical. It is living and breathing in our prisons today. It is living and breathing in the kids that are taken from our whānau and placed into state care, which we know is still abusive. Uh, it is living and breathing in the social stats where we see Māori, we're sitting at all the negative ends disproportionately of those stats. That is the living consequence of colonisation. It's not a historical thing. In fact, actually Parker culture had a lot to learn from us uh, when women and children weren't just pieces of property anymore and that came about way after we were living that way. So I think that there's some other um, learnings that have happened from any kind of relationship but at the moment, colonisation, we're existing in an abusive relationship uh, and the consequences of that are still alive today. Uh I think, as I said on this program before, Wallace, um, that, you know, until mana whenua are thriving in New Zealand, New Zealand can't thrive. And that's, that's, that's a reality, I think, that we've all got to be, you know, thriving and being successful in, in every capacity we possibly can. And there's a lot of things to be corrected that have gone wrong in the past. Hey, Dr Henry, thank you for your time. Kia ora. Kia ora to you both. Thank you. Uh, uh, Dr Ella Henry, Director of Māori Advancement in the Business School there at uh, AUT. It's 17 to 5. The panel are NZ National, Julia Faiputi and Mark Knopf-Thomas with me. And just very briefly on another note, um, people are saying, uh, Wallace, pull your head in Moulin Rouge is amazing. (laughs) Yes, it is. Yeah, everyone's saying it's uh, it's really something to see. Genius.
Baz Luhrmann. Yeah, Baz Luhrmann. Um, here we go. Yeah, uh, most music, movie musicals are rubbish, but Moulin Rouge was stunning. Get with the program, Wallace. Anyway, uh, <laughs> police in Auckland have found what's thought to be the first 3D printed firearm. Stuff reports the gun was found during a visit to a headhunter's gang uh, house in Tiatatu at the end of last month. Officers were looking for a man who'd breached bail when they found the gun. Now, whilst mostly made of 3D printed parts, it also needs metal parts to operate. And according to the article, it's illegal to make or possess a 3D printed gun without a licence. It caught our attention, actually. So we thought we'd bring in a professor of international law at Waikato University, uh, Al Gillespie. Kia ora, Al. Kia ora, Wallace. This is one gun, but does it signal a new way for firearms to be made legally? Without doubt. And what we've got here is a situation where technology will move much quicker than the law and our mm. ethics. I think what you'll see now is one, but the, the technology will improve, they'll get cheaper, and we'll have to update our law around it. I was actually doing a bit of homework about this, and I didn't realise it's actually becoming quite an international issue. A very interesting uh, article uh, coming from Washington. So these are these ghost guns, or do-it-yourself guns. They are unserialised firearms built by unlicensed individuals. Um, Pretty significant in that you can't really trace them, Al. Really big issue. You've got guns which are effectively unregulated, untraceable and possibly undetectable as well. And so many security um, actors are very concerned about this with the risk of terrorism in particular because Mm. things like metal detectors may not be as effective as they once were. Wow. Is there one solution potentially be to have 3D printers licensed, having like a national register of 3D printers because they can make so many weird and wonderful and dangerous things? You've got two parts to the problem. The first part is actually if someone makes the firearm, and clearly you need to be licensed to make a firearm, to possess a firearm, or to sell a firearm. But that's a different problem to someone who has the plans for making them. And if you want to control the planning, then you have to go into censorship laws to make sure that what they have Mm. currently would be deemed objectionable, because at the moment it would not be deemed objectionable to have the plans. Interesting. What do you reckon, Julia? Well, uh, yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a, it's sort of like this weird thing that's not very common that we that we hear about. And I was thinking, I was thinking, had the same thought as well around whether or not we can license a three D machine just just to be yeah. able to trace it. But it is a bit scary because if you have people who are using it to create weapons, they're obviously really intentional about what they're doing and the purpose for what that is for. And I just really hope it's a minority. Um, practice and, mm. and sort of area and population of people that are, that are doing this. Yeah, so it's not, uh, it's not a major issue now, Al, but it, it has the potential to be a large issue in the future. We, we will see whether, where the law falls on this, because this will be the first prosecution following the ah. retrieval of this firearm. And, but other countries are already moving into new legislation mm. and new policies. And so at the moment, this is just the first instance, but we can imagine as the technology gets quicker, cheaper, more effective, mm. that many more will follow. It's particularly attractive to those who want to stay outside of the existing known criminal networks. Mm. So just on a final note, Al, because I do know it's an issue overseas, uh, legally is anything that we can look uh, look to overseas to follow and bring back to New Zealand? Well, in New South Wales, they've already said that to actually possess the plans is a crime. In the UK, mm. they've said that this is a crime if you actually make the firearm. But so there's effectively a de facto ban on it, but it's the kind of thing that you want the law to be specific as we go forward. 
Right, Professor Al Gillespie from Waikato University. Thank you very much, Al. Appreciate it. Quite scary, though, isn't it? Mm. Anything can be created. Yes. Really. So after that, when I uh, when I was doing a little bit of a re- reading around on this, I went online and looked at a YouTube video and the person making it. Wow. And it was pretty easy. So you get the design from online, you buy the kit, and hey, presto, you've got a gun that fires a bullet. Now, the, the interesting thing is they're still in the infancy, so the gun is uh, a pretty poor firer doesn't fire very well at this moment, but they were saying that give, it, give, give mm. it a few years, it'll mm. change and it'll change rapidly. So, yeah. But the fact they can't be picked up by a scanner, that's a scary thing, mm. I think, for going through an airport. Yeah, well, that's, that's mm. exactly right, mm. yeah. yeah. Uh, just we're, we're going to be talking about tax very shortly, 12 to 5, the panel owns the National Tessia's Kyoto. Wallace, I see you a holiday nightmare and I raise you. Booked a holiday from the UK to New Zealand for myself. Husband and three children, 6, 4, 18 months in 2003 via Singapore. Then SARS happened. So I rebooked flights via LA. On the way to the airport from our house in Glasgow, tripped of half an hour, a daughter threw up on herself and myself in a taxi. Our eldest son got food poisoning from chicken sandwich we ate the day before and vomited the whole first leg to LA and sat on the toilet in transit. Once landed, the husband developed pneumonia. Re- recovered, then we went to Queenstown and he developed gout. Such a fun <laughs> holiday. <laughs> Wow. Though he immigrated in 2004, was seven months pregnant with number four by then. A relatively easy flight, though, says Tess. Tess, thank you for that. Ten to five, the panel. Now, many of the ultra-rich pay next to no income tax. According to a report from the non-public, non-profit organisation ProPublica, overall, the richest 25 Americans pay less in tax, an average of 15.8% of adjusted gross income, than many ordinary workers do. Amazon founder Jeff Bezos paid no income tax mm. in 2007 and 2011. Tesla founder Elon Musk's income tax bill in 2018... Zero. It was starkly summed up when a panel speaker, Rutger Bregman, awkwardly brought up the issue at the World Economic Forum in Davos in 2019. Yeah, I mean, I hear people talk in the language of participation and justice and equality and transparency. But then, I mean, almost no one raises the real issue of tax avoidance, right? And of the rich just not paying their fair share. I mean, it feels like I'm at a firefighters conference and no one's allowed to speak about water. Meanwhile, there has been a global movement for uh, better tax on corporations. The G7 proposal to establish a digital services tax could have implications for here. The G7 want a global minimum tax rate, 15%, so as to avoid countries undercutting each other with low tax rates. And I know that Joe Biden is pretty big on that. Now, Terry Belcher is from Belcher Consulting, a tax expert. Kia ora, Terry. Kia ora, Wallace. So these are perfectly legal tax strategies. Many of the Uberage are able to, what, shrink their federal tax bills to nothing or to even close it? Yes, they are. The American system is well known for having all sorts of various exemptions and available. And the wealthier you are, the more exemptions are available to you. So um, that's what Jeff Bezos would have done in that year, 2007, when he had reportedly nil income. He earned $18 million, of dollar, uh, $18 million, I think it was, or something, and um, he had offsets available to take care of all of that. What? But, but how? But how? I mean, give us an insight into how someone like Amazon founder Jeff Bezos pays no income, no income tax in those two years. Well, it's... 
As I say, it's the American, the American approach. Now, the key thing to, for word to focus on is income. What is increasingly the issue around the world is the question that we are not taxing capital and wealth. Right. Mm. So wealth has accelerated away very rapidly. I think the one thing that probably caught all the economists um, short in the last 12 to 18 months was the in- explosion in wealth that happens as an indirect result of the COVID pandemic. Uh, that wasn't something that anyone saw coming. But what it has done is exacerbated a trend that has been developing for quite a number of years now. Um, you know, the, that ProPublica article is really quite fascinating. It is focusing on an American position, but it, it's absolutely fascinating to point out that some of these, uh, the 25, the folks on the 25 richest Americans, they have had a phenomenal growth. They're just eye-watering growth in their wealth, but they're reporting and not paying very much tax on that relative to the growth in their wealth. So if you take an economic return viewpoint, saying we should tax all economic return, which includes growth of wealth, then they are not paying much tax. But if you take the narrower definition of income and you can control the level of income, they're paying um, really... um, they're paying the right amount of income tax under the rules. Gosh, Julia, what do you think of this? Uh, well, I mean, the richer you are, the, the more you can afford to avoid um, paying what is your share to contribute to whatever country you exist in. And um, multinationals as well get to get to uh, mm. dip, dip in and out of, of other countries as well. So I, I'm very supportive of somehow having a tax structure that means that we'll be taxing these multi-patrillionaires um, a fair <laughs> share to engage and profit of our, of our own way of, of existing. I mean, you have someone, you have the person who's washing our dishes in these cafes and restaurants that we're talking about for long hours who is paying income tax and then you have these multi-million billionaires who are avoiding it because they can afford to navigate the system. Paying zero tax in some instances. Mark, you got a question for Terry? Uh, yeah, I just think there's the middle people. Everyone's getting squeezed and at the cost of you know the uber wealthy. And for me, it's just a really good argument to think next time you're doing online shopping at Amazon.com, think mm. twice about that because you can go and support a local retailer yeah. anywhere in New Zealand and support them, and that's going to go straight into you know into their life and their community and, and, and their business. Um, yeah, I, I think it is absolutely outrageous, and the fact that multinationals can trade here and siphon funds off to Singapore or Ireland or wherever else they can to avoid paying tax. It really grinds my gears. It's not fair mm. and it needs to be fixed. Okay, so on that, Terry, uh, this, uh, this G7 proposal, which has actually been, uh, internationally, it's been quite big news, uh, this global minimum tax rate, uh, 15%, so as to avoid countries undercutting each other with low tax rates. Some people have actually not liked, liked, not liked it. They said that we'll, we might see a flight of New Zealand com- of companies in New Zealand going offshore. What do you think? Not really. Um, they're making. Uh, I think the net is closing in. Yes, a, to to elaborate, this potential companies will do that. But you always hear this, this when tax rates or a threat of a tax increase comes along. The property sector is a good one. They're always raining mm. against them. They will, will sell up and stop uh, renting properties, but they never do because the margins are good. Um, I think so. I, I think that's just all just rattling the cages and sort of trying to put uh, tax authorities off. 
the, the net is closing. The days of the tax haven are numbered because this proposal, if it goes through, is basically saying shuffling profits off to zero tax tax havens is no longer going to be possible. Right. Not going to allow it because it's taking too much out of the system. Now, how enforceable, and I think all tax authorities around the world are focusing on this because everyone is broke. You've, it, uh, we are quite lucky down here because the global financial crisis didn't hit us, our, our finances, government finances, as hard as it did in America and Britain and Europe. But they've had that, and then barely when they started to get back on the feet, they've had the pandemic. So reshaping how tax happens at the international level, the global level, is happening right now. It's happening quite quickly, actually. Is that right? Um, so, and, and I guess there's something, I mean, let's just face it, there's something a little bit, uh, <laughs> say for what it is, something fundamentally uh, unjust about, as Julia says, a dishwasher or a person on a middle to low income paying uh, as much income tax per capita as perhaps uh, someone like Elon Musk. Elon Musk. <laughs> what, 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 what sort of what sort of society? Uh, what sort of society do we have when it gets to that? Well, I think we're heading towards ancient regime, the revolutionary pre-revolutionary France or pre-revolutionary Russia, when those sort of injustices come through. Mm. Um, you're writing a powder cake um, at that stage because people will be saying, well, we've had enough. We're actually seeing some of that now. I mean, this is a bit geopolitical, a little bit off my beaten track. But if you think about what's happening about the Brexit and the rise of right-wing populism in Brazil, in Hungary, Poland, um, a large part of that is tied to, well, you know, all this money that everyone seems to be making, we're not seeing any of that. So Mm. stop you. Um, so the strains are emerging, and in some ways, unfortunately, as in Brexit and Eastern Europe, it's manifesting itself in authoritarianism and in many, in some cases, just frankly racism. That's but, a fair point, Julia. Yeah. That's how Trump got in, isn't it, pretty much? He I, rode, rode that wave. Yeah. Terry Belcher from Belcher, because it's a pleasure to have you on the show. Again, appreciate it. There you go. And that's almost our show there. Now, um, for tomorrow, Friday's panel, we had a big response uh, regarding climate change emission. And Emeritus Professor Ralph Sims said, the biggest thing that you can do is think of one thing. It's, it all, it's all down to everyone. What's the, what are the small steps that you do every day, every week uh, to contribute towards making this place uh, a better place in terms of climate change. So that's what we're going to be talking about tomorrow but for now, Julia Fireputi and Martin Thomas, it's been wonderful having you both on the panel. Always Kilda, a pleasure. Thank yeah. you. And what else chat? Oh, very cool track. Oh, Moulin Rouge, this is for you, Mark. Terrible. See Terrible to song. Listen to this. Magical. Ruining the show. Alright, see you tomorrow.